Your sin reflects on Christ to this world. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that you should crumble every time you have sin in your life? No. What makes your sin different than the world's sin? Whether or not you repent of it. Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. Yesterday, Abigail and I went out to uh, eat, and there was this little girl at the table next to us, and she was laughing, like, so uh, hard and so genuinely, but it just made you, like, kind of stop what you were doing and almost, like, have to enjoy it. Like, she was so happy about life, you know, and she and so it was like, it's a cute kid, Right. Um, that was a nice experience with a child at a restaurant, but I think we've all been to a restaurant when you like wish that you could just put that child to sleep in the in the gentlest, most non-mean way possible. And and you, like those kids when they're you know that you almost like wish like the parents would never bring them out in public. That kind of kid. But the thing is, like, what I figured out about those kids is, like, who you're actually mad at in that situation is you're mad at the parents, right? Like, that's who you're like, can you please do something about your child, right? And, you know, parenting is hard, and I understand you can't always, you know, have the most perfect, well-behaved kids. Um, I think there's a difference, though, between, like, the parent who's, like, embarrassed that their kid is crying, and you're like, yeah, it's, like, it's okay, kids cry, Versus the parent who like is oblivious to their like nightmare child that's like running circles around the around the place, right? So there's like two very different extremes here. But either way, you're not actually, you know, kids like they don't just immediately know how to act. They don't just act the right way naturally. Like somebody has to show them. Somebody has to teach them. And then because of that, when they are being crazy it actually reflects on the person that's supposed to show them how to act, right? It reflects on the person who who should be taking care of them. That's who should be like ashamed of their behavior. So we're in a series on church fails, and it's from the book of 1 Corinthians, and basically the entire book is about the church in Corinth acting in some shameful ways. Basically, they are not living up to being uh, God's children, they are instead looking, they are instead distracting from the gospel and bringing shame to the body of Christ and to what Christ did on the cross, right? And so Paul is writing this letter where he's basically saying, okay, here's the list of all the stuff you guys need to cut out and stop doing and start behaving correctly. Now, the, the key factor is that this is not a book that tells us, okay, here's all the things you have to do to be a Christian. It's not the point, right? It's not, it's not that you have to accomplish certain tasks to be saved. It's that if you are saved, there's a way that you will want to act, should want to act, and it reflects what's true on the inside that you have been saved. And part of Paul's argument is actually, if you are the kind of person who has no concern with any of that and just thinks, I can do whatever I want now, maybe you're not actually saved in the first place, right? That's the real question. 
It's not about earning your salvation. It's about, do you even have it? So last week, we ended in chapter 10 where Paul basically says, listen, here's the easy test. Whatever you're doing, do it for the Lord. That's what matters. Do It, it doesn't matter if you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it for the Lord. That's where he ends chapter 10. And then we're going to move into this week, and he's basically going to say, okay, if, if, obviously he's not doing this one week at a time, right, like we are. So when he's writing this, he basically is going to say in, in chapter 10, and it's going to sound like this going into 11, whatever you do, do it for the Lord, because a lot of you are doing a lot of stuff for yourself, right? And so that's where we're going to move into chapter 11, as he's going to begin to point out the ways that they are distracting from the gospel. So the question to ask yourself as we move into this first portion of chapter 11 is, who do you bring shame on by your behavior? Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I handed them down to you. So uh, the first thing is we see that that verse... Uh, verse 1 is basically the tone setter. Now, the thing about verse 1 is there's some debate as to whether or not that's actually capping off chapter 10 or starting chapter 11 or kind of both, like a transition phrase. And honestly, it's kind of the theme of what Paul's getting at in all of 1 Corinthians. He's saying, look, there's a right way to act. I'm chasing Jesus. If, at, if, if you don't do anything else, Try to look like me as I try to look like him, right? Now, he doesn't stop. It's very important that he doesn't stop with just try to look like me. Be like Paul. Paul, do the Paul things, right? That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying, okay, try to imitate me as I try to imitate Christ, right? So that that is kind of the theme of everything that he's about to talk about. And then verse 2, um, verse 2 is uh, a highly debate, debated verse. He says, now I praise you. And then he's going to immediately move into a series of things where he's upset with them. Right. And so I read up on this verse a bunch and there's not really a conclusion to like what we know Paul is saying he praises them for. Here is uh, here's my perspective on this verse. I think what Paul is saying is he's basically saying, you know how you guys do a really good job at remembering the traditions that I've told you? Well, now let's talk about some of the traditions that you're not remembering, right? So it's almost like he's saying, look, you do a great job at this generally, but here's the parts where you're messing up. Here's what you're not doing right, right? And so that's going to lead into verse 3, uh, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 10, and we're going to take this entire section together because it's this is a very, very hotly debated part of Scripture. So starting in verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For it is, for it is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, have her also cut her hair off. However, if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, have her cover her head. For a man should not have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from the woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for man's sake. Therefore, the woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Okay, I hope you can see why that passage is very debated, right? 
So there's obviously a lot in there that's like, um, with our modern eyes, when we read that passage, it's like, whoa, what is even happening here? Like, all, all women were created for men, and you should keep your head covered. And let's jump to another part of Scripture where it tells you to be quiet in church. I don't want to hear any talking, right? It's like, that, that, that's always caused some like consternation in the church. Like, what is happening here? So, to be honest, this uh, was almost like a very disappointing uh, week of study for me as far as like looking at the commentary, uh, talking about these scriptures, because I look to the commentaries to tell me the information I don't know and can't figure out by myself. And as I looked into the commentaries, basically the commentator was like, I'm not sure. And I was like, I'm not sure. I need you to have something. Like, I need you to tell me what's going on here. And so there was... There's a lot packed into this that is culturally specific and that I'm not necessarily going to unpack like line by line. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm, we're going to talk about some principles that are happening in this passage. And honestly, if you, if you understand the way to apply these principles, they'll help you out understanding large portions of Scripture that don't make sense to us anymore, including uh, a bunch of stuff in the Old Testament, right? Because that's even farther removed culturally. So it's helpful to be able to understand how do I intake this scripture that doesn't make sense to me culturally, okay? So the first rule you need is this. There is a difference between prescriptive and descriptive, okay? So sometimes scripture is prescribing something, saying, do this thing. And sometimes scripture is merely saying, look at this thing that, that was done, right? The way they did it. That we're describing something that happened. We're not saying you have to do the thing that happens, right? And so that gets dangerous though, right? How could that be mis misused? Because you could look at things in the Bible that are very cl clearly uh, prescriptions and say, well, they're just describing something. I don't have to do that. That doesn't apply to me, right? People do this all the time with, and we obviously pick and choose. It's like tithe. Uh, that's just a description. I don't have to tithe. I don't have to give, you know, and it's like, you don't have to tithe. But do you want to be a part of what God's doing? In the church, right? Do you want to, to take part? And so the key is not that you have to do a thing, but we have to know the difference between the principle that they're trying to tell us and the description they're giving us. Okay? So the description in this passage is very culturally specific to an age where uh, there were there were certain um, etiquettes about the way women uh, participated in church. And the key is if they didn't participate in church in these ways, it would have been very scandalous. It would have been very distracting from the gospel because of the culture they were in, right? Why do we not think that women need head coverings in church? Because it doesn't make sense culturally. That's not what's going... You, you, if you got up here to teach as a woman and you were teaching from the Bible without a head covering, there wouldn't be somebody who would walk in the back and be like, this church lets women teach without head coverings. What are we going to do? Like, that's not how it works, right? So because that's not something that distracts from the gospel, that's a description to us, right? And the principle is, again, just go back to chapter 10. He literally just said, whatever you do, do it for the Lord. That's how you gauge whether or not we're sinning, okay? So then what's happening here? In the Corinthian church, it's that they are doing things for themselves that are counter uh etiquette that were distracting from the gospel because they cared more about what they could get away with or how they could act, not presenting God's word, not actually sharing the gospel. So because they cared more about themselves, they were being distracting from God's word and distracting from the gospel. And he's saying, 
look, don't, don't let your women behave in a way that the rest of the culture already automatically knows shouldn't be the case, right? And you can see this easily. I mean, um, ancient cultures, a woman with her head shaved, this would have been, that would have been a, a huge problem, right? That would have been something like no woman would have wanted a shaved head. And he's saying, why would you let a woman do something in your church that's the equivalent outside the church of her walking around with a shaved head, right? And so that is the, the way he's making the point, which leads me to the two principles I want you to see that he's, that he's giving us in this part of scripture. The first one is he's saying, live according to the created order, okay? So here's what that means. You live in your life in authority structures, right? You answer to your parents, or you did at some point, right? You answer to your boss. You answer to your government. You should, at some point, in some way, and this is a sermon for a different passage, answer to your pastors, right? That's an appropriate authority structure that you should submit yourself to. He's saying, now, one thing that gets hard for people in this passage, he says men and women. He's talking about husbands and wives, right? He's not saying all men are in charge of all women. That's not what the passage means. What he's saying is that just in the same way that Christ willingly submitted himself to God, and in the same way that the church willingly submits itself to Jesus, so also a wife should willingly submit herself to her husband. And I've always pointed this out. We we get real sensitive about that word submit, but, but let's back up. Does Christ dominate the church? Did God the Father dominate his son while he was in willing submission? No, because that's not loving. That's not caring for. So we're not saying, well, women, you just got to suck it up and you just you have to be under the control of your man at all times. No, that's not that's not the language, right? The language is when a man is fulfilling his job, his function to love his wife, to put her first, to die for her on a daily basis, then she is safe to willingly submit to him and respect him in their marriage, in the context of their marriage, right? That Now, I will clarify, how does that relate to like a room like this with a bunch of single people? How, how are we supposed to do this? Well, I'll tell you this. It does not mean that the women are supposed to be completely submissive to all the men in this room. I would argue it does mean that all the men in this room should be practicing uh, taking care of their sisters in Christ, putting their sisters in Christ before them and sacrificing themselves for them, right? But in that same, in that exact same tone that I just said to men, it's about practice. So in that exact same way, I'll look at the women and say, are you practicing to be the kind of woman who in a marriage will submit and respect your husband? And here's why that's important. You're not going to flip a switch. You're not going to wake up the day after you, you say the, the vows and just be like, ah, now I'll submit. Like, it doesn't work like that. And if you behave in a way where you're constantly sticking it to the man and showing what a strong, independent woman you are, well, you, you're going to have a tough time when you first get married and you're trying to fit into this, this uh, what is designed to be this perfectly cohesive relationship between a husband and a wife. And trust me, it is a great system. And we that, again, that's a whole nother sermon. But the point is, if you're practicing that kind of respect for your brothers in Christ, someday you'll have that respect for your husband, right? And so in the same way, men should be practicing that selfless attitude towards their sisters in Christ so someday they can selflessly put themselves out for their wife, right? So he's saying live according to this created order, this willing submission. 
basically you're, you have to choose in your life to submit to God-given authorities. Here's the deal. There, there is clear and obvious evidence in the Bible for the authority of the church in your life. It's there. So what makes you do it? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing that makes you submit to the church in your life. It is for your own good. It's for your own benefit. Now, does that mean every church is perfect in this? No. I think you need to be careful. You need to be safe. You need to go to a healthy church that teaches the Word of God and doesn't, isn't, you know, led by an egomaniac, right? But if you're at a safe church that is practicing the Word of God, then it's on you to say, I believe this enough to willingly submit myself to my church authorities so that I can grow in Christ appropriately. One thing to look at in this is that submitting yourself to something doesn't mean you're less valuable than it, right? Like, like if you see children obeying their parents, you don't look at the children and think, what a worthless little idiot. Like, you know that actually the parents would die for that kid, that they would do anything to help that kid, to protect that kid. So you know that the kid is not worth less because it obeys and submits to its parents, right? So it's the same for you. You willingly submitting yourself to the church doesn't make you worth less, right? It actually puts you in your appropriate place in your life, which allows you to grow and fulfill the purposes that God has for you. The second principle is live within the appropriate limits, okay? It's not about rights. It's about obligation. How do I, how, how can I say that? Did Jesus live according to all of his rights, or did he live according to his choice of obligation, what he, what he chose to be obligated to? He was obligated to fulfilling God's will in his life, and he put aside his rights to do that. Why? Because Jesus had a right to not die on a cross, right? Jesus had a right to not suffer, to not be uh, tempted. Jesus had a right to do. He, he definitely didn't have to come submit himself to a finite shell of humanity and live among us. He did that because he chose to do that. Right now, he wasn't obligated because you deserve it or obligated because he did something wrong and he had to make up for it. He chose to be obligated to this. So in the same way, are you more concerned with your rights or are you concerned with what you are obligated to? Are you living within the limits that God has given you? I always tell you guys, you can't be an alcoholic and go hang out in the bar and just be like, but I just won't drink. No, you set limits on yourself. You don't go into the bar if you're an alcoholic. It's the same thing for us in our lives, putting appropriate limits on ourselves. There's this really confusing verse in the middle of here where he says, um, he says that women should cover their heads because of the angels. And it's like, what? Like, what are we talking about, right? Okay, uh, I, this, this phrase was the only phrase that I actually found some good clarification on, okay? Here's what he's saying. In the presence of God, the angels cover their faces. Why? The angels are covering their faces in the presence of God because they don't want you to look at them or worship them or their glory. They want you to focus on God. So in God's presence, they hide their own glory so that you can focus on them. Here's what he's talking about. Corinth right now has a bunch of women who are showing up doing something inappropriate culturally because they are trying to draw attention to themselves. And he says, 
Look, just like the angels who understand that it's not about them, it's about the it's about God. You women need to come to church understanding that it's not about you. Quit trying to get attention and let people focus on what they're supposed to be focusing on, which is receiving the gospel. Right? The answer to this to this passage, right, is not the description. Like next week, I don't want to see a single woman in this room without a head covering, right? It's not the it's not the description we're worried about. The prescription is the principle, which is that every single one of us should walk in this room and say, how can I put people's focus on Jesus? How can I show people the gospel and let them find truth and not make it about me? Right? Because even the angels aren't making it about themselves. This entire passage is about a difference in men and women's functions, not a difference in men and women's value. Right? These are not the same thing. And our society says today that if you as a woman can't do every function of a man, you are less valuable. That is not true. Function and value have no relationship to each other. Look at verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is a woman independent of, of man, nor is a man independent of woman. For as the woman originated from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does even nature itself not teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor have the churches of God. Okay, so the first thing we see here is he says, he's, he's making that transition where it's not about value, it's about function, and he says, essentially I want you to hear it like this, that first portion where he says, but man comes from a woman, he's saying, listen, it's not about value, you have very different functions, but guess what, every man has a mama. Every man was born and owes it to a woman giving birth to him, right? And he's saying that that is how you equate the value, it's not that like man somehow exists apart. Listen, women since Eve have been given the glory of being the people who perpetuate life. If there's no women, there's no tomorrow. That's just, that's the end of it, right? And so he's saying, listen, don't treat women like they're less valuable. You literally have your, your existence owed to a woman who carried you all the way to birth. Right. And so that is him immediately undercutting this idea that there's some kind of value difference here. See, the entire section leading up to that, he was saying, quit, quit disrupting the functions of the body of the church of who you're supposed to be. And then he gets this point, he goes, and don't treat each other like somehow men are just better. Right. You, by the way, you want to you understand how timeless scripture is. Does this not sound like it's written to us right here, right now? Right. And at the same time. Do, do you realize that like they were having the exact same problems back then? It's not like feminism is a brand new thing, right? These, these were basically women in the church being like, I'm a strong, independent woman. And Paul's like, okay, but it's not about you. Stop that. And then you got men over here going, uh, you should be silent in church. And he's like, you know that you have a mom, right? Maybe you should watch your mouth, right? And so both sides are doing the exact same thing we see today. It's the exact same problems in the exact same ways. And Paul would have the exact same answers, right? Just with like a little bit of cultural difference, 
right? A little bit of, of difference in the specifics, in the description. So he, he, he finishes here. He references culture again. And, and then he says, so he's saying, you know, uh, basically at the end he goes, why do I only have this problem with you? Like that's what that last verse in that section means. He goes, he goes, look, the, the pagans know that, that these things are inappropriate. And all the other churches know that these things are inappropriate. Why are you the only church having this problem? Right. And what he's what, the reason he's saying that is because the argument going on in Corinth is like, well, I'm free in Christ. Right. Everything's permissible. Everything's good. I can do whatever I want. And he's going he's going, OK, so you can do whatever you want in Christ, even the stuff that none of the other churches are doing and that all the pagans know is a shameful way to act. Right. So he's he's telling them, like, look, all you have to do is look around at nature and you can see that you're behaving in a wrong way. Right. And so, again, this this is all evidence that what Paul's doing here is a culturally specific description. But we need to take the principles away from it. Your sin reflects on Christ to this world. Okay, so now what what does that mean? Does that mean that you should crumble every time you have sin in your life? No. Here's what I want you to understand. What makes your sin different than the world's sin? Whether or not you repent of it, right? You're not different than the world in that, well, their sin is what just reflecting on them or just killing them, but my sin somehow reflects on Christ. Now I'm in trouble, more trouble. No, it's that when when the world sins, they go, what? There's nothing wrong with that. I didn't do anything wrong. They justify it. Our our goal in the Christian life is to look look at the fact that our sin reflects badly on Christ and then repent of that. Okay, and here's the thing. When the rest of the world is busy trying to justify their sin and we are repenting of our sin, then they look at us and they go, what's that about? That's the whole point. That's the testimony. That's what points people to Jesus because they go, repentance? I have nothing to be sorry for. Really? Because I have a lot to be sorry for. I have a lot of shame for the way that my sin reflects on Jesus. And the repentance of that is what, A, shows me that I have the Holy Spirit, and B, points points our entire culture to Jesus. That is what we're how we're supposed to be behaving. That's what makes us different. You're supposed to consider the head. Now I put that put that bullet up there and I want you to understand Christ is the head of the church. When you don't consider Christ, you are dishonoring the head of the church because you are supposed to be the body. You're supposed to be different parts of the body. And you're not supposed to be bringing dishonor on the head of the church, which is Christ. Like, what would you do if just like your hand went rogue and started embarrassing you? Right? You'd be pretty upset. And and that doesn't even make sense. That analogy like doesn't register. You're like, well, I put it in my pocket, I guess. That's the thing. Is like, quit being that rogue hand that is bringing shame on the head, which is Christ. So the next portion is is we're going to talk about considering the body. Now, uh, you all know my lovely wife, Abigail. And Abigail, um, Abigail does not like being sick. And, I mean, nobody likes being sick. But the thing about Abigail is that she ignores being sick until she crumbles, right? And so what happens is she starts getting sick, and she just pretends that, like, that that's not real. Like, And so here's the thing. 
if Abigail's body could talk to her, it'd be like, please, lay down, take some medicine. I'm, I feel terrible, right? But she's, she's basically not considering it. She's like, no, I'm fine. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to ignore it, right? And so here's the thing. I have become, in our household, the spokesperson for her body on its behalf. <laughs> I have to go to her and say, you need to lay down. You need to take off of work. You need to take some medicine. You're sick, right? And so I help her consider her body, right? That is the, what's happening in this passage. What we're going to see is people ignoring the body of Christ for, the, for what, however they want to act and actually hurting it, right? So we just talked about not honoring the head. Now let's look at not honoring the body. Look at verse 17. Now in giving the, uh, this in- next instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions uh, exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there also have have to be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for when you eat, each one takes his own supper first, and one goes hungry while another gets drunk. What um what do you sorry? Uh what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What am I to say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I do not praise you. Okay. So, Paul moves into, moves into this section. He says, listen, I'm not happy about this, this next thing we're going to talk about. I'm upset with you. And he says, there are, he goes back to where we saw at the very beginning of Corinthians, that there are divisions among them. Okay. Now, the, we've already talked about the division, so the, the language here is a little bit odd, but he's basically transitioning to a new kind of division. He's not talking about the division that we see at the beginning of Corinthians, which is like, well, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, and then there's the really holy people that say, I follow Jesus, right? He's not talking about that division. He's moving over to this new division where he says, some of you are dividing yourself thinking because you're rich or wealthy, you think you're better than other people, and, and you're treating others with a lack of dignity and respect because of the of the blessings essentially in your life right now um so basically what he begins to talk about here is he talks about the lord's supper now the first thing he's saying in this portion is he's saying when you guys think you're getting together the lord's supper you're not even really doing the lord's supper that's how inappropriate your practice of it is that you're not even really participating in the Lord's Supper by what you're doing and how you're acting. So what is happening? Okay, this part is, um, it's weird because Paul is writing, this is on purpose, right? We would get hung up in the details if we had them. But what Paul's essentially doing is he's writing to a situation that they are both, both ends, the writer and the audience are aware of, but we're missing those facts. Okay, here's what we, here's what we think is happening. Either it is a church body in Corinth where you bring your food to the Lord's Supper, like you bring you know, bread and wine to participate in the Lord's Supper together, and some people are bringing like a ton of food and then not even sharing it with the people who can't afford that much and are just coming with like enough to participate in the Lord's Supper, right? And so, uh, and then the, the people that are coming and bringing a lot of food, they're basically saying, well, I haven't had dinner. Um, you know, because it, it was a fellowship meal, right? It wasn't the way we do the Lord's Supper, where it's just like this tiny cup and this little piece of cracker, right? 
It's like they were eating together, but even in that, it, it wasn't a focus on the Lord's Supper, on the remembrance of what they were doing. It was a focus on eating the food. And so then you had the rich showing up with a dinner, and then you had the poor showing up with like their cracker and their small cup, right? And so he's saying, okay, either either that's what's happening, or it's several house churches, churches, and they are basically uh, they basically congregated in their house churches by class. So all the rich people are going to this house church and sharing the Lord's Supper, and it's a feast. And then all the poor people are going to this house church, and they're eating their crackers and drinking their grape juice, right? So it's it it's one of those two cultural problems, but the outcome is the same. You have a group of people who is basically uh, who is basically saying treating this like it's a it's a celebration or a meal or a feast, but they're not focusing on what the Lord's Supper is actually about. So then because of that, Paul is going to remind us in the next passage of Scripture what the Lord's Supper is actually about. Look at verse 23. For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay. You've, if you've been in church longer than a day, you've heard that, that passage of Scripture, right? We do that every time we do the Lord's Supper. We go through that set of verses, okay? Now, here's what I want you to see. First, let's talk about the theology of what we're talking about, the body and the blood of Christ. See, we had... The, the Israelites had the Passover meal. And the Passover meal was a reminder of the meal they ate the last night they were in Egypt when the angel of death passed over the houses that had the blood of the lambs on them and took the firstborn of all the, of all the Egyptians, right? It was the final plague. It was the last plague before Pharaoh finally consented and let them be free from Israel. Or, sorry, let Israel be free. So they have this Passover meal that reminds them of what? The same thing that God is reminding them every time he brings up Egypt for the rest of the Old Testament. I saved you. I bought you. I saved you. I brought you out of Egypt. Right? That's the reminder. So then, the night before Jesus dies, they're having the Passover meal. And he says, he, he basically takes the Passover meal, but he's going to update it. He's going to give it its final iteration. And he says, look, tomorrow, the thing that's going to save you is the blood of the lamb, the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, right? So what he's saying is, tomorrow, my body and my blood is going to save you. Not the broken body and blood of the lamb, right? That, that was what they were reminded of in the Passover, but the broken body and blood of the perfect lamb, Jesus himself, right? And so he said, from now on, when you celebrate this Passover and you eat this bread, don't remember the, the lamb in Egypt, Remember the perfect lamb whose body was broken. And he says, from now on, when you drink this cup, don't remember the blood you know, painted on the doors in Egypt. Remember my blood that was spilt for you. Right? That was the significance and the power of, of the Lord's Supper. And that's why we participate in it. We, were, we are remembering what has saved us, what has redeemed us and bought us out of slavery. That is the whole point of the Lord's Supper. Now, he says, uh, Paul says two things in here. One is he says, this tradition was delivered to you. And then he says, 
Christ on the night he was betrayed. Now, I want you to see something. In the Greek, these words are very similar, right? Because Paul is essentially trying to stoke something in their brains, okay? The night that Jesus was betrayed, that word delivered to you and betrayed, they're like the same word in Greek. And he's basically saying, I've delivered this tradition to you that is about when Jesus was delivered for you. Right? The night that he was betrayed, he was handed over, just like I have handed over this tradition. This is for you to know that you that Jesus was delivered for you and saved you, handed over for you. He says, now I one of the things I want you guys to we're gonna we're gonna take an aside really fast. There's a there was a huge debate over what this meant in the Reformation time frame. Right? So Jesus says, this is my body, and this is my blood. And in the Reformation, there's this huge uh, you know, debate over, okay, when we take communion, does the wine or grape juice become Christ's blood, and then does the bread become Christ's body? Right? And you had all these different theories. You had the theory that they literally became those things. You had a theory that your spirit was somehow transported into heavenly realms while you were taking the Lord's Supper. You had, uh, and that, this all comes right from the splitting off of the Roman Catholic Church, which was teaching people these are actually the body and blood, okay? Here's why I'm talking about this. The reason I want you guys to understand this is that this debate existed for a contextual reason when the Reformation was happening. It is a distraction now, okay? I have never once had to worry about taking communion and wondering, is, am I drinking actually Christ's blood right now? Why? Because that's not what I'm supposed to be thinking about in that moment. I'm supposed to be remembering the sacrifice on the cross. I'm not supposed to be distracted with like some kind of like, I don't know, magic trick that's happening. That's just not the point. So here's the deal. I'm not saying that if you're not if you're taking a theology class at some school that you shouldn't engage in this debate. It's interesting. It's an interesting topic to talk about. But when you are trying when you're in settings where people should be hearing the gospel. Don't get hung up in a debate like that. Don't don't worry about that. When somebody says, well, well, I think it's actually, first of all, again, distraction, somebody trying to prove how smart they are because they know what transubstantiation means, right? Don't have that conversation. Instead, point them to what the true meaning of the Lord's Supper is, that what, what Christ did on the cross. That's the whole point. Now, here's, here's the other key of this. We have changed in our, in our uh, denomination the word sacraments to ordinances. See, because what people did was they took the Lord's Supper, and because it's actually Christ's body and actually Christ's blood, that taking part in the Lord's Supper is something that saves you. That is not true. That is not how the Lord's Supper works. It does not save you in and of itself, right? It is something for you to remember what saves you, right? It's the same thing with baptism. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is a symbol, a reminder of what saves you. Now, that doesn't lessen the power of these things. They matter. They actually, they actually should remind you, and they should testify to the world about what saves you, but they don't save you in and of themselves. Okay. Now, uh, the, and, and just to clarify what I mean by that, the Roman Catholic Church called these sacraments because they, you had to take all the sacraments because the more sacraments you took, the more, more sure you were that you were saved. Right. Well, we've changed this in the Protestant Church, and we call it ordinances because they're important things, but they don't have salvific ramifications. They don't actually save my soul. Okay. Now, 
why do we why do we get baptized? Right? Baptism is an image of you dying with Christ and then rising with him. Why is that important? The whole point of both of these things, the Lord's Supper and baptism, is that if you don't participate in Christ's death, you won't participate in his life. Right? Why is it so important? Colossians calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Why is that so big of a deal? Because I want to be the secondborn of all creation. Like I want to, I want to live again. I don't want to die and just be dead. I want to die and then come back to life. Well, if I don't participate in Christ's death, then I don't participate in Christ's eventual life. Right? He's the firstborn of all creation because he is the first person to be resurrected to eternal life. That's what Jesus did. He resurrected to never die again. Well, I hope someday to be resurrected to never die again too. Well, how do I do that? I have to participate in Christ. I have to be inside of him because only he is going to be the one that survives all of eternity. And he's taken me with him unless I'm not with him, right? Unless I'm outside of him. So the Lord's Supper and baptism are me remembering, stoking my brain, saying, oh yeah, I am a part of what Christ did. I am. I die with him in baptism, and I will someday raise to walk with him in eternity, right? I, I, because of his blood, because of his body, I don't have to be killed. I don't have to suffer for my sins. Right? I don't have to be broken and, and bleed out for eternity, right? That is the whole point of these things. Is they point us to the truth of what Christ did, that we can participate with him. So what's the point of this portion of Scripture? Paul's saying, quit thinking. only about yourself and and look at the body that you're hurting. Why are you being so selfish with with what you, you know, again, you've got these people who have a lot and they're not taking care of their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're just making up whatever excuse they can to have a party. They're completely ignoring the point of of the Lord's Supper and and what that's trying to show us. And they're just making it about them because they're not considering the body. And many of you know I was a philosophy major. Sad Ethan's not here to give me an amen for that. But um, I'll never forget it. My my freshman year of college, I sat in a philosophy like the basic 101 class. And the first quote the professor put on the screen was the famous quote by Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. That's a great phrase. You know, the Bible tells us that all, all truth is God's truth. So... When we find truth in the world, it never contradicts the Bible. It always fits in. I think Socrates was onto something. I think the Bible tells us over and over again to examine our lives, to look at ourselves, to see the truth about who we are and how we should be living. We should always be examining ourselves to, to see if we line up with what the Bible is telling us to do. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a person must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the one who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not properly recognize the body. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number are asleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Okay, so first of all, I want to reference James, the book of James. In the book of James, he says that when you read the Bible, you're basically looking into a mirror. 
What's the point of that? When you look in a mirror, what can you see? Your flaws. If you examine yourself in a mirror, you can see what about you is wrong, is messed up. Now, the goal of looking into a mirror is to see what's wrong about you and fix it. James says that when you read the Bible and you don't do anything about it, you don't change anything about your life, you don't, you don't actually use it. He's saying it's like looking into a mirror and then walking away and forgetting what you even looked like, forgetting what was wrong, forgetting what needed to be fixed. See, the Bible is a mirror because it shows us who we truly are. It's, it's a reflection of our humanity, of our sin. It's meant to be looked into to see what the problems are so that you can make them look like Christ and not look like the world. That is the whole point. So in this passage, he says, he says, you guys are mistreating the Lord's Supper. You're not examining yourself to see if you're actually treating it with its true respect, with its true reverence, if you're actually trying to remember the things the Lord's Supper is supposed to remind you of. And, and then the crazy part of this passage, it's always kind of blown my mind, is it seems to say that God is letting some of them get sick even up to the point where they die because they're living in such rebellion to him. He, Paul says, this is why so many of you are having health issues right now. That's a wild statement. Like that is a wild thing to say because he says, if you eat and drink the Lord's Supper and you don't take it seriously, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Basically, here's what, here's what that means. You're taking for granted what Christ did. You're taking it for granted. Listen, this is why the Bible tells us that some people are going to get to heaven someday and go, Lord, Lord, and he's going to go, who are you? Because those are the people in church taking it for granted. They're eating and drinking. They're, they're, they, they got baptized. They're doing all the sacraments. But they have no idea what this is really about. They've never actually depended on and put their hope in the name of Jesus Christ as the only way they can be saved. Here's the deal. I I am not going to go to heaven because I took the Lord's Supper. I am not going to go to heaven because I showed up to church. I'm not going to go to heaven because I'm a pastor. I'm not going to go to heaven because I'm baptized, because I do good things. I am only going to go to heaven because Jesus Christ died for me and saved me. That's it. That is the gospel. That is what it is. You put your faith and hope in that one reality. All the rest is pointing to that. But if I put my hope in any of that other stuff, then I'm who Paul's talking about. He's saying, you're taking it for granted. That's why, that's why you're literally having health issues. Now, by the way, I don't, don't, don't transliterate this immediately in your life. Like, I, I had a cough yesterday. It must be because I don't take the Lord's Supper seriously, okay? I'm not saying that that's, it's a one-for-one -one swap there, right? That's also not the only reason we get sick. But the point of this passage is that God was letting them feel their rebellion. He was letting them feel the lack of him taking care of them because they weren't living for him in a true way. Their hope was not in the name of Jesus Christ. They were eating and drinking judgment on themselves. You know, another theological issue we can talk about is the idea of open communion. There are churches, as a matter of fact, we went to a Christmas special at a church uh, that was open to anyone and everyone, and they did communion with the whole room, passed out the stuff when you came in the doors, and I was like, there are, there's probably a thousand people in this room that don't know Jesus. That's not good. 
Like as the church, we should be, and here's the thing, they didn't even like, okay, I could have probably gotten over it if they had used the Lord's Supper as a vehicle to share the gospel with the room. But they didn't. They literally just had it, like conducted it. Here's the thing, if at the very least, this is an opportunity. What churches should do is say, listen, this is what this is about. And if you're not, if you don't understand that and believe that, please sit this one out. Please just don't take part in this. Because we take seriously that God doesn't want you to take it for granted. He doesn't want you to spit in Christ's face. Right? Examine yourself. This is why what you should be doing when you take the Lord's Supper is you should be spending the moments before you take it praying, examining your heart, asking yourself if there's sin, if you're taking for granted the body and the blood. That's the whole point. You're supposed to be examining your life and saying, I don't don't want to take this for granted. I want to be forgiven. I want this to remind me of what Christ has done for me. It, it, that, that that verse at the end, 31, he says, if you had judged yourself, you wouldn't be judged. What does that mean? If you judge yourself, what does that make you do? It makes you repent. See, when you excuse yourself, you don't repent. When you judge yourself, then you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I don't want to have this sin. That's judging yourself. That's, what, that's the whole point of the Lord's Supper is it's something that you're supposed to examine. Man, am I, am I, am I taking Jesus for granted? Am I outside of his will? Oh, I'm going to judge myself right now so that I can be cleansed. I can repent. That's why he's saying if you if you did that, if you repented, every time you took the Lord's Supper, if that caused you to repent, then God, there wouldn't be any judgment against you because you'd be forgiven. But instead, you're just excusing yourself. Look at verse 32. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, have him eat at home so that you do not come together for judgment. As for the remaining matters, I will give you instructions when I come. The Bible says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, because he chastens those who he loves. Here's the deal. Do you want discipline or do you want condemnation? Those are the options. See, the world hates discipline. Because of that, they will eventually receive condemnation. But see, Christians, we love discipline because it tells us that our Father loves us, that He is our Father. Right? It's like, uh, uh, rarely should or does a father discipline a kid who's not his own. Right? You see a kid running wild as a dad, and you just go, Somebody else's problem, not mine. See, but when it's your kid, you care about them so much that you discipline them. See, when you're disciplined by the Lord, it's because he is your father and he's taking care of you. And if you're not being disciplined by the Lord, because he's not your father, and someday you're just going to reach condemnation. The Bible tells us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You know what it doesn't say? There is now no discipline. Just hang out, have fun, live loose. It's great. Like liberty in Jesus. Like, no, it says there's no condemnation in Christ. But we should love the discipline that comes from our Heavenly Father. Verse 33 says, listen, just consider one another. Consider, examine yourself, and then take care of the body, which brings honor to the head. That's the whole point of this passage of Scripture. It says, don't treat the Lord's Supper like dinner. Eat at home, then come. 
and make the Lord's Supper about what it's supposed to be about. That's actually why we do the crackers and the grape juice instead of a, a meal, because it's, we're not trying to get distracted. We want it to just be about remembering, right? We're not, we do fellowship, we fellowship all the time, but that's not the moment for it. That moment is to remember what Christ did for you. Take a good look at yourself and then repent and change. Examine yourself, judge yourself, repent, then love others, focus on the body. And then because you've loved others and focused on the body, you'll bring honor to the head, right? We went, we went in reverse order, going down to looking at the, the, what's the root of the problem. You're not examining yourself. You're not looking at yourself to say, man, man, look at the way I'm living and how it doesn't match up with what Jesus did for me. And if you do that, the other two get fixed almost automatically. You'll start caring for other people, and then you'll start bringing honor on Christ's name. We live in a culture that there's, there's two toxic ends to shame. There's this end over here that's like letting shame choke you out and tell you that you're an awful person, right? No, shame should drive you to repentance, which then frees you from shame, right? But then there's this other toxic end over here, which is the world's response, which is like, don't make me feel bad about anything. I should never even feel, if I feel even an inkling of shame, it's your fault for the way you're living, and I'm going to scream about it on TikTok. Some of you know the, well, you should all have heard of the, the singer Ariana Grande. She just released a, a new song called Yes And, and it is literally a response to accusations that she had an affair with a married man who then left his wife and kid, and her response is, yes, and? That's how the world treats sin. That's how the world treats shame. Yeah, and? Right? That is not the response of believers. Believers look at their sin and their shame and they go, thank God that Jesus is taking this away from me. That I'm saved from this. We repent of it and then we're free of it. This, this week, take a chance, take the time to look into the Word of God and examine yourself. Look into the mirror. If you are not reading this book every single day, it's like if you didn't eat. It's like if you literally went, just woke up tomorrow and said, uh, and, and went to bed and went, oh yeah, food, I, food, that's a thing. Like you would never do that, right? Because you get hungry. I promise you, if you're not reading this, you're starving. Right? That's why Jesus said, if you drink the water that I have, you'll never be thirsty again. He's talking about spiritual water. This week, take a chance to look into this book every day and examine your life. Look into the mirror and repent of what's wrong because Jesus saved you from it. That's, that's my challenge to you this week.
Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.